From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Danglis. Today, social media experts Sean Holloway, Deborah Jasper, and Ryan Squire join me for part two of our discussion about the changing landscape of social media. Our talk will no doubt have you ready to attend the free-to-attend Digital Media in a Social World Conference at Ohio State University on April 1st and 2nd. This event will be headlined by Make Magazine founder Mark Frauenfelder. And more information is available at www.dmsw.osu.edu. But first, guest interviewers from the Ohio State University Intergalactic Science Fiction Club discuss the future of science fiction with sci-fi author Delson Armstrong. Stay tuned. My name is Maura Heafy, and I'm a senior lecturer in the English department who has taught a number of classes on science fiction, and I'm joined by... David Przinski. I'm a second-year student at OSU, and I'm the president of the Intergalactic Science Fiction Club here at OSU. And we're talking to Delson Armstrong, who is the author of Falsifier and The Prophet's Secrets, which are the first two volumes in the Red Serpent series which now correct me if I'm wrong Delson this these are the first two volumes of a 14 volume series that you have projected yeah that's right 14 right right hmm. so 14 volumes of the um, of the red serpent series and I'm looking at a quote from you Delson which is science fiction has evolved over the years today's science fiction is more and more becoming a commentary on our life and society we have seen this in recent movies television shows and books what science fiction has shaped your writing in falsifier and the prophet secrets uh, well, I grew up reading a lot of, uh, you know, the classic science fiction uh, novels like um, I- Isaac Asimov and, you know, H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, you know, the classics. And I also grew up watching a lot of the science fiction films. And I was very much influenced by uh, the the idea of the future, what would the future be like? And that's that was my starting point. Um, and then I, I then I went into horror. I started reading a lot of horror fiction, and uh, then the idea of mingling the two, you know, vampires and science fiction, uh, came about. I was actually surprised to see that you were hoping to work vampires into your story. What made you want to include this? Is your current upcoming work going to be something like a space twilight in the future, or? Uh, well, no, not really like Twilight uh, in the sense that it's, you know, it doesn't have those qualities of a romantic story. The vampires in this story are sort of different from the tradition of uh, Dracula or any other original vampire story. It's more of the idea of uh, the vampires are known as vampires to the humans um, of the story because they need energy or they need blood in order to survive and they transmute this blood into energy for themselves. So, and they come from another planet and uh, they are actually the originators of the human race. So I kind of incorporated this idea of the ancient astronaut theory where, you know, humans were uh, visited by extraterrestrials thousands of years ago. And uh, I wanted to include that as well. So there's a lot of different factors involved in the story. Uh, where you have the where you have the normal structure of science fiction post-apocalyptic story, and you also have different themes. Uh, you know the idea of 
what would happen after an alien invasion? What would happen? How would the humans react? What would they do? What would the government be like? And that's where the idea of social commentary comes into place. Government of the humans is quite dictatorial uh, and totalitarian due to the fact that there is no no order. And so one man rises and tries to unify them uh, for the greater good, as he says. And it is very interesting to think about what would happen in the future if aliens came and take over and what would mm-hmm. have an effect on our government structure. Yeah, because, you know, I don't know if you noticed, a lot of the science fiction that is available it focuses mostly on the actual invasion rather than what happens after. Instead of the social aspect. Indeed, yeah. indeed, yes. It kind of, it's a fade to black just when, you know, things get interesting, isn't it? And yeah, exactly. You've decided to take it, well, how do we survive in this situation? And you mentioned two things that I think are interesting trends in current science fiction, and that is the emphasis on the post-apocalyptic and the emphasis on blending genres. That is, you, you said you looked at horror, you looked at science fiction and thought, I can do something with this. Are there any other sub-genres, you might say, of science fiction that you think are important in the current world of science fiction? I think something where, you know, where they focus on technology, because the present day, you know, technology really rules our lives. And uh, the idea of where technology takes over, you know, that's been done before. Mm-hmm. But where technology is able to create its own technology, you know, the idea of singularity, that's something that's very fascinating. Oh, yes. Yes. The big topic, isn't it? And big <laughs> and very fascinating topic. Lots of material there. I was actually wondering what kind of new technology is going to be seen in your book. I know that previous writers have been limited by the technologies of their time. But nowadays, since the technology is expanding so widely. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering what kind of ideas and concept do you see in our future? In my story, it's such that uh, I have included a lot of the archetypes, you know, where you have the flying vehicles and all those mm-hmm. things that have been overdone. But what I've tried to do is mingle technology and uh, spirituality in mm-hmm. a sense. The idea that how can you control control technology not only physically, but spiritually. So there are a lot of different spiritual aspects to it where the idea of controlling energy or the idea of converting energy into something else. So humans themselves or you know, vampires have the ability to convert food sources into energy, like how mm-hmm. we always do, but in the sense that they use this energy for destruction. Mm-hmm. Yes. And is this energy somehow civil? I, I apologize, I'm a Star Wars fan. Mm-hmm. Is it kind of related to the Force? Yeah, the yeah, I did take, yeah, yeah, I did take some uh, aspects yeah. of that. Uh, because uh, what I did was, um, I read a lot about uh, Hinduism, a lot of Eastern philosophies. And there's a particular chapter in the book, in the first book, which explores that aspect where our protagonist is actually very interested and has a lot of knowledge about uh uh, the different Eastern uh, philosophies. And so there's a dialogue that goes on between them and the idea that there's certain rules and regulations, uh, those kind of things, just, oh. just like you have in uh, Star Wars. Abs- yes, absolutely. And of course, that, that 
can be absolutely fascinating, the cultural context, the spiritual context in which the, the culture, the hero has to operate, and right. all those rules that kind of limit his action, his or her action, I should right. say. Exactly. And that's another area of conflict for him because absolutely. he doesn't want to control himself. What I immediately identified your stories as is the the great great subgenre of space opera mm -hmm. and i wondered how you saw working in the tradition of space opera because space opera has had a kind of up and down history mm. it's gone through phases where critics and even authors have been quite dismissive and then there's like a resurgence so do you see yourself working in a kind of new golden age of space opera? Yeah, I would like to think so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I really like in, uh, reading a lot of space opera mm -hmm. and watching space opera. And uh, it's gotten a, a little of a bad rep uh, in the past. I don't mm -hmm. know why. But uh, personally, I I enjoy space opera. And I, I see that there might be a resurgence you know, mm. in that genre. Yes, yes. It's mm -hmm. good to see that you'll be contributing to the great history of space opera. <laughs> I, I hope so. We should probably add for listeners that you were born in Bombay and you spent some of your, you've, you've divided your time, your youth, so to speak, between the USA and India. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what the state of homegrown science fiction is like in India. Do you, do you see it as having a strong presence over there? Are other young people looking on their um, tradition mm -hmm. and their culture as being a good source of ideas for science fiction? Or are you blazing a trail here? No, actually, in India, there is a lot of science fiction material out there. It's really based on the culture, based on the mythologies of uh, Hinduism and um, some of Buddhism as well. Yes. So Hinduism is such a vast subject where you have various stories, various gods, various uh, origins of uh, creation, etc. Mm -hmm. So... You know, e each writer over there has uh, taken on uh, one particular idea, be that the idea that, you know, the world is a dream, the universe is a dream, um, or the idea that, uh, you know, the idea of reincarnation. That's yeah. another example. Yes. So a lot of science fiction, I would say, not truly hard science fiction, but, you know, they incorporate uh, genres of fantasy and um, other subgenres of uh, fantasy. So it's not totally science fiction, but I think there is a there is an emergence over there. Wonderful to hear that. It seems that in a lot of sci-fi, though it's set in the future, the story actually is just trying to get us to think about current day problems. And obviously, as our technology changes, um, we face new problems. What kind of problems are you trying to get us to think about in your upcoming story? What kind of themes mm -hmm. are the protagonists facing mm -hmm. that reflect current day issues? Yeah, um, when I started writing the story, I didn't have any particular idea as to what I would try to comment on. But once I started with the second draft, um, I was in India at that time, and I was kind of influenced by the September 11th uh, attacks because mm -hmm. I, was around, uh, I was around 11 or something at that time. Mm -hmm. 
and it really influenced me a lot. And the and and the way that that date actually divided was like pre nine eleven and post nine eleven kind of thing. Oh, indeed, yes. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I wanted to explore themes after I I, I started reading the first draft. I saw the connections and I decided, you know what, let me see what I can uh, explore over here. And so I incorporated themes of uh, xenophobia, the way that vampires and humans, you know, humans really hate the vampires and vice versa. Mm. And one of the protagonists in the story wants to accept uh, some of the vampires who are friendly to the human cause. And so he wants to incorporate them into society. But then there are a lot of people who don't like that because, you know, he is the so-called enemy. So I, I wanted to in- include that because I, I went through that in, in some ways where because I come from a different background, you know, I, I kind of face that kind of stuff. So I wanted to include that. And a lot of the politics that are involved, I kind of base it on, um, you know, the Bush administration, some of the Obama administration. So, you know, I, and I wanted to comment on the idea of why are we going to war? What's up with the war in Iraq, war on terror, so-called war on terror? So I wrote, you know, the, the idea of uh, humanity wanting to come back, the idea of the war. So there are a lot of different factions in the story which are for the war and against the war. So it's sort of like a mirror for society. Something that I found very interesting about the way Falsifier begins, you have a number of prologues in which you introduce a number of different characters, mm-hmm. good, evil, indifferent, vampires, humans, etc. And that actually does reflect what you've just said in terms of we are basically allowed to see these characters on their own terms mm-hmm. and not really, oh, this character's evil. We're, we're sort of allowed to make up our own minds about them as individuals. The way I've, I've written the story for the first two books and I'm, I'm continuing in the same voice is I'm not really uh, commenting, uh, I'm commenting on who's good or who's evil. You know, I'm just presenting mm-hmm. the facts and the, the different characters. So I kind of switch scenes between mm-hmm so-called protagonists for the vampires and the so-called protagonists for the humans. So I'm looking at both ways and I Mm -hmm. present it in both ways. So there might be times where the reader might actually empathize with the vampires in certain scenes. So I I didn't want it to be, you know, like a clean cut, good versus evil sort of thing. The quote that I used at the beginning from your own notes, Delson, it ends where is this leading science fiction? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that? that there might be a, how should I say, a reawakening of science fiction in, of, the, of the 1950s mm-hmm. and 60s. Because I, I consider science fiction in totality as a commentary on life. Whether it's you know science fiction or any other fiction, the writer is out there to convey some sort of message, something that he's passionate about. And... I think science fiction should be like that, and I think and I hope that uh, the future of science fiction will be such. How do you think that uh, science fiction has changed from perhaps Mm -hmm. the past writers like Isaac Asimov? I think science fiction has changed in the sense that uh, now they're incorporating a lot of other subgenres and uh, genres from, like, example, um, um, horror or um, fantasy, Mm -hmm. and uh, we really need to keep up with our present. present world because uh, our world, our present world is actually science fiction for people a hundred years ago. So we, we really need to kind of change our strategy when we're writing science fiction because 
you know, every five years, every 10 years, there's a new sort of technology. And so you really have to think out of the box. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you, Delson, and I, and I do have to say I enjoyed reading the excerpts from your novels on your website very, very much. It's been a great pleasure speaking to you this morning. Same here. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest interviewers Mara Heafy and David Brzezinski from The Ohio State University Intergalactic Science Fiction Club who talk to sci-fi author Delson Armstrong. Now, part two of my talk with OSU social media experts Sean Holloway, Deborah Jasper, and Ryan Squire. When we left off last time, we were discussing the risks and advantages to social media. You're talking about risks. What if a student doesn't like a class? Or what if a student says something, you know, really bad? But but you have to weigh opportunity costs. So you have to say, not doing that, what's the risk? We say a lot that there are two risks. There's the uh, return on investment. You know, everybody talks about what's the ROI on this. This takes a they think, oh, the channels are free, but it takes a lot of people sometimes to actually post on Facebook and to tweet out and to really pay attention to all of those channels. So that's one ROI. But the other is risk of ignoring. Right. I mean, you really can't afford to ignore this space because students are tuning in and potential students mm-hmm. that you're trying to attract, they're going to be more likely to read a blog by another student than to read the brochures or the PR, the traditional PR that you put out. So there's a big risk in not doing it well, as we've well. We've had situations where you really one post was this is the day in the life of a student and you know what that sparked conversation and it's really more of an opportunity to fix an issue or to have the conversation whereas otherwise you wouldn't have it right people could be having that conversation on the street but now they're having it in a way that we could actually watch the conversation Mm -hmm. and that's new and look how valuable it is to find out that question 12 is really confusing. I mean, you can fix problems. Mm-hmm. You know, people, if, if five or 10 people start complaining or 15 people about the same thing, then you start to know, okay, we've got an issue here, we've got to repair. So that's the great thing about listening. Well, and it's really listening through the traditional channels too. You yeah. know, what are people calling in about? What are people emailing about? And it's also a way to distribute answers. Yeah. Um, to those types of things. So it's just another communication vehicle as part of our marketing mix. You know, you've mentioned communication and marketing, and, and I think that you're all sort of in that mix. Do, I'm wondering whether the rise of social media has created other jobs, or is it one of these things where it's putting more work on the people that were already there? Because you've already got the traditional mm-hmm. uh, ways that you were talking about, like the brochures. The brochures seem to me like it's unlikely they're going to go away right. today, Then, but now it's a new Mm-hmm. thing that's a being laid on top of people and is that something that is uh, a bad thing for them because they have to take on extra work is it are they bringing in other people i mean you're the social media person so i think i think that it I think it's both uh, i think it's both i think that at least in the beginning it's new to companies and so they feel like wow we need somebody who understands this who can figure it out for us who can help us you know get there but i i really think doug that that down the road, this is this is 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 part of a business is answering the telephone or, or sending emails. I really do. It's like quality control. I mean, you have to have everybody engaged. Right. I mean, being a social business or being able to to interact with your customers is going to become an expectation mm-hmm. um, from from your customers. And I think that uh, I think that the businesses who are there now are the exception. Mm-hmm. And and they're and, but they're seeing a ton of benefit right. because of it. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what industry they're in, whether it's business or financial or health or or, right. or journalism. I mean, the companies that were there first 
are, are reaping all sorts of benefits. But I think that it will become, um, and so is there always a social media person? I think there's always a, a person who, whose job it is to, to you know, stay on top of these trends, to, to, mm-hmm. to understand what it means, to look for opportunities. Um, but I think that everybody's job is to is to tell stories. That's why that. that's why I never say I'm a social media expert because maybe I was at 8 a.m. But by nine, the world shifted, and you know it really is hard to stay on top of these trends. We don't even assign books in our classes and our graduate courses because by the time you get the book, it's really outdated. You can order you know a book on Twitter, and by the time you get the book, there's 50 million more people <laughs> tweeting every day. So mm-hmm. it really moves that fast. But if you look at journalism, the titles have changed. Uh, and you know, as journalists, as a lot of journalists, thousands of journalists were getting laid off, traditional print reporters, we're seeing a lot more people contact us now who are con- who are engagement editors. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in charge of trying to engage the public in new ways or their content, their social media managers. I mean, there's new titles in newsrooms now mm-hmm. because newsrooms are recognizing, we say, Look, it's not. Uh, you're not just competing with your neighboring newspaper. You're competing with your neighbor, mm-hmm. and your neighbor has really powerful content. And so, it really, is changing the way the journalists, traditional journalists, are doing their jobs. I think that's really valid for businesses too, yeah. because I mean, what traditional journalism has always done is tell stories. Right. Um, that's what they've done, mm-hmm. and and now it, it's it's possible for businesses to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think not only is it possible, but I mean, you talk about how important it is mm-hmm. that we aggregate those stories and, and listen to them and see what they are, but creating some of that content from a right. business standpoint, I think is essential and, for businesses. And, and it's so. a huge challenge for journalists because they're showing up and realizing, wow, you have your own platforms mm-hmm. and you're telling your own stories. Right. And so what does this mean for the stories that I'm going to tell about you? I mean, well, I mean uh, sorry. No. Well, one of the biggest things that we're moving towards is actually a level of participation. You know, it's one thing to tell our own stories and to get an occasional like or comment based on one of our stories but to take the next level of engagement and getting to that peak of participation Mm -hmm. or really really having an engaged conversation i mean really how many meaningful conversation are out there there's probably a lot are you in that conversation or you're not right and that takes time Mm -hmm. i think ryan to your point Mm -hmm. about positions in social media really kind of forming themselves is you have those relationship managers. I mean, they're your digital salespeople. Mm -hmm. They're out there building relationships and it takes 15, 20 minutes to have a conversation or to monitor 20 conversations at the same time. Well, there just went half your day. Right. And the change for writers, I think, in all of this, I mean, for I was a traditional print reporter. I was a long form narrative writer and suddenly, and I think the reason that all these journalists are coming to the Kiplinger program now this year. We had a record number of applications is because they're thinking, I have to write in a much more short way. I have to learn how to tweet in a way that's going to get attention. I have to learn how to post on Facebook. I have to be more informal. You know, journalists were sort of able to have the, the formal we. You know, they were able to write in that way. That's changing. It's radically changing now for so, reporters. Are, so you've so. got this going on at, at the KIPS, but do you see this going on in other journalism oh, programs sure. where you've got journal, like Tweeting sure. 101? Uh, Is yeah. it that formalized yet? Yeah. Or they, oh, we uh, teach strategic tweeting. You know, how do you tweet strategically? How do you build a following? How do you get people to tune into your Twitter feed? How do you think about um, who you want to follow? Because Twitter... I use it as a really smart research channel. I mean, I follow really smart people and in my field, and they're tweeting out all day about what's going on on the web. It's great, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we teach leveraging Facebook. I mean, uh, the latest trends. There's just a lot of... We, t- we went to the Investigative Reporters and Editors Conference this year in Vegas and taught strategic Twitter. And now we're going to Norway, actually, the Nordic Digital Media Festival, and teaching strategic Twitter. So it's very... 
I know. I never thought that. I'm strategic Twitter. Strategic I like that. Is there strategic but... Yammer? If you get, I mean, well, actually, that's yeah. a, a serious question. When you right. you take something like sure. Yammer, seems to me to be Twitter writ small. Yeah. You know, it's just for that organization. And and, right. and, and for what people do do who don't know what that is, Yammer is people who are just sort of tweeting within their own organization. Mm-hmm. But uh, sure, I mean, if you're at Ohio State, for example, they have a big popular Yammer feed, and you're on Yammer, you have to be thinking about. Uh, what what's my reputational capital on this feed? You know, who am I presenting myself as? How am I talking about my program and what it is I do? So you're always having to think well, about that. You're mixing your personal brand with your yes. organizational slash professional brand. And everybody brand. is. Mm-hmm. In whatever world we're in, we are all mixing our personal brand and our professional mm-hmm. brand. And that's mm-hmm. changed. You know, we, one of the things we teach is, and I didn't make this up, but what happens in Vegas stays on YouTube and Twitter. <laughs> you know, And people really have to be more thoughtful about yeah. who they are on these channels and the how thing, they one of the portray that, themselves. Yeah, what, that Yammer really shows us is kind of a microcosm of the bigger social media world. And so, you know, we, we've heard that we can't go into social media and just, you know, blast out all sorts of information about what we're doing. You know, the medical center is this, that, and the other thing. Um, you have to go in and look for ways to provide value for people. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially when you use Yammer, I mean, you can really see how that comes true because when you go into that feed and you just start sending your press releases or rewriting, you know, a headline, Right. Um, it doesn't. I mean, nobody talks about it. They don't right. comment. They don't. Right. You know, mm-hmm. And that's. And I think mm-hmm. that 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 is mm-hmm. really just a, a snapshot of how it looks in the rest of social as well. Well, if you look at the Chicago Tribune, I mean, they have a a traditional Twitter feed where they're just tweeting out headlines, and they have I don't know about thirty thousand plus. I haven't looked at it lately, but around thirty thousand followers. Mm-hmm. But then they have Colonel Tribune, and he wears a funny hat, and he engages with people. Mm-hmm. And he tells jokes, and he's still doing the news, but in a much more informative, informal way. And he, they have over 800,000 followers. Mm-hmm. And I think the lesson is people are tuning into the informal, whether you're a journalist or whether you're in business or whether you're mm-hmm. you know, in the medical field, whatever field you're in, people are looking, we're hyper-distracted. We've got mm-hmm. more than 100,000 words coming at us every day, and that's outside of work. So people, you, you know, if you're going to get attention in that world where, you know, any minute everybody's looking below their table and they're on their iPhones, it's hard to get people's attention and it's really hard to keep it. So you have to use there's a, new there's a concept strategies that for that. Steve the Rube- strategic Twitter. Strate- the strategic. <laughs> there's a um, concept that um, I've read Steve Rubel talk about. Some of the people from, from uh, um, oh, what's the name of the company? I'll, I'll come back to it. But he talks about the collaboration imperative. And the mm-hmm. idea that that um, for it to really be social, for it to actually be social media, there has to be the purpose of it has to be collaborative in nature. So you're you're working on something with someone else um, for a shared goal or for Perfect. a shared purpose. Perfect. And I think that's essential. I had one other question that I wanted to ask the two of you, Ryan. You've written that you believe local media companies should be performing platforms for citizens to share content and educating them on how to be true journalists. And I was assuming that you would twitch when I said that. Um, but I'd like to you know, no, come I, back to no. that. No, mm-hmm. and, and, I have and, a different perspective on it, but go ahead. I do. Okay. I, I think that uh, that is, is, I mean, you know, you could argue commercial journalism versus public, you know, public media. Um, but, but I think that commercial journalists, if they want to stay relevant, have to find a way to involve the, their, their audiences, and not just their audience that wants news and information, but their audience that wants a platform to sell a product. They have to find a way to get those people involved in what they're doing, which ultimately is telling stories. And so you can either fight somebody 
and, and say, no, this is my content and I'm gonna hold on to it and, uh, and you go do your thing and it's not real because it's not journalism. Um, or you can work with them and teach them, you know, some of the pillars of journalism. You can teach them how to, how to tell, you know, accurate and fair and balanced stories. You can teach them how to, how to look, think critically about the story you're writing. Um, and I think that, that as journalists, I mean, you know, we have a responsibility to a certain extent to do that. I, I, I don't see why, um, you know, doctors, would never go out and listen to a talk or or, or watch a, you know watch somebody try and perform something that's medically um, incorrect. And why would journalists allow people to continue to do that? I think it has to be a teaching collaborative. But I think that there's I think there's a responsibility there that journalists have. I just think this notion that we're the only people as journalists who can tell powerful stories is it's mm -hmm. over. <laughs> well, I think there are lots of people out there who can tell better stories than we can tell when they tell mm -hmm. them the stories themselves. And those folks get attention, you know, and they, I mean, or it's like the landing, of, you know, they happen to be in the right place. If you're watching the plane land in the Hudson, are you a journalist? Well, I mean, you, you got a lot of amazing uh, footage that maybe the rest of us didn't get there because we're, didn't get because we're not in the Hudson. Yeah. So I've heard the phrase, it's oh, better sure. to be lucky than good, <laughs> you know, to be there at the, but the, yeah. the things that you're describing about, you know, you can teach these people. Do you think that, that it is being taught? Do you feel that, that people are being uh, responsible with it in a way that squares with sort of the diminishing influence of traditional journalism? I think people are hungry for it. I mean, we teach it a lot in the past two and a half years. Um, we've taught social media to more than 5,000 people, okay. a lot of them businesses and, and governments. I mean, we were in Ukraine. The Ukrainian Council of Ministers is trying to figure this out. So you feel like, okay, if the Ukrainian Council of Ministers is working on this, I mean, people are working on this all over the world, that I think people are trying to learn. There's a huge interest in this. It's a hot issue right now. They say social media manager is one of the top hot new jobs right now. And it's because all of, we're in the midst of a communications revolution, and we have to help people figure out what that means for them. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest revolution, they say, since the invention of the printing press. And that took 200 years, and we are all getting to watch this unfold. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. With my guests, Mara Heafy, David Prasinski, Delson Armstrong, Sean Holloway, Deborah Jasper, and Ryan Squire. Our discussion of social media will have no doubt made you ready to attend the free Digital Media in a Social World Conference at The Ohio State University on April 1st and 2nd, headlined by Make Magazine founder Mark Frauenfelder. More information on that is available at www.dmsw.osu.edu. Join me next time for the author of What Technology Wants, Wired Magazine senior maverick Kevin Kelly, who will talk to guest interviewer OSU professor Ben McCorkle about technology, the Amish, and how some innovations are destined to be invented. Until then, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.